This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We learned more this week about the crisis in Ontario hospital emergency rooms. A new report from Ontario Health finds that hospital stays in ERs increased by nearly 16% in August compared with August of 2021, and the length of stays for patients admitted increased by more than 48%. Dr. Stephen Flindel is a GTA emergency physician. Even before this report was released, Dr. Flindel joined Libby on Wednesday to share his personal experience with this growing healthcare crisis. Things are, are certainly getting worse month by month. Um, patients that are being admitted to the hospital are uh, having a significant impact on the emergency department because uh, the hospitals are full. The admitted patients are starting to stay in the emergency department and occupy our beds. Uh, that's been going on for a while. How much worse has it been getting? Uh, it's significantly worse. There's been days where I've come down uh, or gone in for a shift, and uh, basically every acute care bed we have in the department is occupied by an admitted patient. Um, so we're trying to uh, shoehorn patients into like really almost non-clinical areas to uh, to provide care. And uh, uh, what is the backup? Is the backup of what's called alternate level of care patients? That's patients who are waiting for a spot in a nursing home or a rehab, uh, or is it something else that's causing the backup lack of nurses or all of the above? I think it's all of the above, but, uh, you know, when you, I looked at the report and I went into the data, it actually looks like the uh, hospitals in Linz with the lowest, or sorry, with the highest number of alternate care patients are actually uh, the least impacted by the recent uh, surges. So their numbers have changed less than some areas with the uh, with lower occupancy rates by uh, ALC patients. And And why would that be? Uh, you know what? I'm not quite sure. You can't get it right from the, the raw data. There, there must be other factors going uh, going in. Um, maybe they're more efficient at uh, the patients that can be discharged, getting them out, and uh, getting uh, the patients up from the eMERGE. Um, you know, you, you can't see those answers just from raw data. And again, in your experience in your hospital, uh, do you have thoughts on what would help alleviate the situation? Um, you know, I really don't. I, I, the, the fact that we're seeing so much high acuity illness coming in, and it's been quite striking to me how, many, how much of the new acuity is actually pediatric patients. I mean, clearly there is respiratory illness going around. Um, it may not be all COVID, but it's certainly all things that uh, just doing general precautions like masking, like vaccinations, uh, like sick time, they would all help the situation. And uh, just letting um, these illnesses uh, continue to, uh, to rise unfettered, I think, is, is not sustainable. 
we're heading into flu season, and I gather that it could be a bad one based on what's happening on the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah, we're seeing some uh, pretty bad numbers. This could be one of the worst flu seasons in quite some time. Uh, Australia's had a bad time, and that's usually our kind of marker of how, what the season's going to be like here. Not always. There's been some times where Australia's been badly affected, and we haven't, but usually it's a pretty reliable predictor. The emergency rooms that we've seen closures in, a lot of them are, are outside, they're rural. Yeah, well, the the worst numbers are definitely in uh, larger centers in Toronto uh, and the the surrounding areas. Um, the interesting thing is, yes, the rural uh, closures uh, are definitely impacting things, and I think that's part of the reason you see larger centers being impacted. Because where do those patients now go? They go to the larger centers. I I've find it interesting that none of the closures uh, have any sort of data captured on these studies. Like I I think they should all be. Um, captured as like failing, uh, failing standards, uh, but they're just taken right out. So, you know, those closures aren't even reflected in this data. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, that, that, uh, that doesn't make it all that useful, does it? Well, I think it's useful in the fact that you see the, the burden that the uh, remaining emergency departments are fading, are, are seeing. Uh, because, like I say, the, these patients are still there, but and they have to go somewhere. So they go to the bigger departments. The bigger departments are getting disproportionately affected by the, uh, the the numbers and the complexity, and it's reflected in the length of stay and the inpatient beds and all, everything else. Dr. Stephen Flindel is a GTA emergency physician. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. The Trudeau Liberals in Ottawa have made using the Arrive Can app optional. But that decision has not shut down the controversy around the program that so many Canadian travelers love to hate. It came to light recently that $54 million was spent by the federal government on the Arrive Can app. Why did it cost so much money? Did it really require that level of investment? Employees at two tech companies spent Thanksgiving weekend creating their own version of the app. One of those company representatives is Sheetal Jaitley, founder and CEO of Tribal Scale, who joined Libby on Wednesday. We, we do a company stand up every morning and we talk about what's in the news. And obviously, us being in tech and being digital product builders, um, this news story came up that was in the Global Mail. And you know, our, our tribe was kind of baffled at how much capital was spent on ArriveCan, um, having used it. And so a couple of members of our tribe were, you know, started, started piping up saying, I bet you we can rebuild this in two days. And one thing led to another and a homegrown like hackathon started happening. And we said, Hey, let's, uh, let, let's, let's show the government that we could clone the app and, and show them that hey, this, these things can be done with uh, with capital efficiency and productivity, and uh, let's 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 go to all levels of government with a positive message of how we can help them do things smarter and a lot better. Uh, wouldn't you have been building on what was already done when there was nothing there to work from? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a lot easier, Libby, to clone an application that's already been built, but. Um, this is a very simple application. It's uh, it's more of an intake form. Uh, this doesn't 
require the level of strategy that a lot of digital products require when they're much more complex. Um, and, you know, I, I, having said that, I think like, look, it's a lot easier to clone it. And they're, you know, us saying, oh, yeah, we would have been able to work with the government and do it in 48 hours is not what we're saying at all. What we are saying is, hey, there's a magnitude of difference here. And there is a way for all all levels of government to actually start working a lot smarter. And uh, as a tech community, um, a lot of people in the tech community are pretty baffled at how, how, how this can happen, especially especially with Canada being a place where the world comes to build their digital products. Um, we have amazing, not only tribal skill, we have amazing innovation digital firms in Canada that actually do this day in and day out for the world, for companies all around the world. Um, and for this to happen and our government to, to, to make, to spend this kind of money was something that we really baffled us. And we wanted to show them, hey, things can be done a lot more capital efficient and done in a more productive way. Um, and we, you know, we want to, we want to tell the government, Hey, we're here to help and let's, uh, let's actually help you for free. Let's, let's, let's be the change we want to see in society. Uh, how much do you think it should have cost? Let me keep completely honest. We build far more complex apps than arrive can for less than a million bucks. Um, there's maintenance costs that obviously go with, digital products that, you know, support maintenance, hosting, as Jim Nesson, um mentioned, you know, but you could do these things in a much more economical way. I think the magnitude of $54 million to say, hey, um, there's a form that the government put out and it's an intake form. It, the maintenance cost of that compared to some of the banking apps we build or the healthcare apps we build is nowhere close. Um, to, to, to what the spend was. But you, even if you go line item by line item of what needs to be done to maintain a digital product, uh, we are not anywhere close um, in the realm of what was spent here. A last word from you, Sheetal. What would you like to leave us with on this? You know, I, I, I would like to leave us with this. Hey, this is not a gotcha moment for just a ride can. I think um, as you said earlier, Libby, we all take a look at what government does and we kind of shake our head to it. And I think, you know, the tech community and the smart uh, ingenuity of, of our community, especially in tech, wants to come with a positive solution to the table and help Canadians all across the country um, see capital efficiency from their government. And we want to be here to help. Right? <laughs> this, this, this is something the community wants to do. Um, for free to, to, to make life better and spend better for all of us. Shatil Jaitley, founder and CEO of Tribal Scale. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, the onslaught by Vladimir Putin against Ukraine hits a new level of terror. We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The latest offensive by Russia's Vladimir Putin against Ukraine has sparked condemnation around the world. On Monday, the Russian leader ordered the largest aerial assault since the early days of Moscow's invasion, raining missiles down on at least 11 cities, killing at least 19 people and injuring more than 100 others. 
There were dozens of missile strikes from Lviv in the west to Mykolaiv in the south and Kharkiv in the northeast. In the capital, Kiev, residents took shelter in subway stations, as they did at the beginning of Putin's war. All of the attacks targeted civilians and civilian infrastructure after escalating nuclear threats from the Russian dictator. On Tuesday, Libya was joined by two experts to discuss the latest onslaught. Dr. Maria Popovich is an associate professor of political science at McGill University in Montreal. And Dr. Eric Wallet is a professor in the Department of Defense Studies at the Royal Military College in Kingston. The, the latest attack is, is really a revenge uh, against the, uh, the bombing of the, uh, the bridge on the Kirsch Peninsula. But it's really more about uh, inside Russia, and though there's a lot of Ukrainian victims, uh, because the ultra-nationalist groups in Russia have been uh, becoming far more vocal and implicitly critical of the uh, regime in, uh, in Moscow. So um, he had to give them something, and uh, that was a way for him to, to do that. Because otherwise, these kind of bombings are, from a military standpoint, have very little effect. And if anything, they just get the population more angry and more willing and determined to fight back. I, I sort of disagree with this. Uh, my take is that um, these um, these attacks were really uh, Putin's way of trying to break uh, the will of uh, the Ukrainian people. He's under the delusion uh, that uh, if uh, he inflicts enough damage, uh, people will actually want uh, to pursue, Ukrainians will actually want to pursue compromise and negotiations, maybe cede territories. Um, I think it's another miscalculation by him in this regard. It has indeed strengthened um, not only Ukraine's resolve, which has always been very, very high to withstand this in- invasion, but it seems that it's counterproductive in terms of strengthening resolve among Ukraine's allies in the West to really support Ukraine to win this war. Um, uh, and... and- Dr. Popova, do you see this as a sign that Putin, that Russia is desperate? Uh, I I do see it as a sign that they are, that they realize that they are losing uh, this war. They have lost momentum. They're losing some of the territories uh, that they gained early on in the invasion. Um, So they they do uh, want to try harder. Dr. Willette, um, where do you see things going from here? Uh, we haven't even discussed the situation with the Russian call-up and uh, a lot of young men leaving the country. I mean, is this a new period of escalation or what? Well, I think uh, we're uh, the Ukrainians are uh, right now um, um, reorganizing themselves a little bit because uh, they made a very quick advance uh, in the region of Kharkiv, and now they're entering in the Lushansk uh, province. And, but I think their supply chain is not followed, so now they have to um, uh, reorganize themselves to be able to continue to, to push forward. Uh, and they will continue to push forward also in the region of Kherson. Uh, again, they're just uh, reorganizing, resupplying, re-equipping. Um, the question is, will the Russians will be able to stop them? Um, right now, if, uh, if all the reports we have about the very low quality of the troops that are sent there, 
I don't think they will be able to stop them for a while until they really establish um, better capacity and troops, uh, which means they will have to draw troops from the Far East, um, uh, the, the, the only la- last professional troops they have. If we start to see that, uh, it means that they, uh, the, the, the level of desperation, they reach, a, again, a new high level. Okay. Uh, Dr. Popova, what would you like to leave us with? Um, I very much agree with the last assessment. I think uh, it, Russia will have difficulty uh, mobilizing quality uh, troops to push back. So uh, we are um, seeing Ukraine with momentum in this war, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Dr. Maria Popovich, Associate Professor of Political Science at McGill University in Montreal, and Dr. Eric Ouellette, Professor in the Department of Defense Studies at the Royal Military College in Kingston. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Monday was Thanksgiving Day in Canada. It was also World Mental Health Day. According to the Center of Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, one in five Canadians experience mental illness in any given year. And by the time Canadians reach the age of 40, one in two has either had or is experiencing mental illness. Given these numbers, mental illness is common and perhaps more of a shared experience than we realize. Bob Comsick filled in for Libby on Monday and was joined by Dr. Keith Dobson to discuss. Dr. Dobson is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary and past president of the Canadian Psychological Association. Oftentimes we think about mental health as a continuum, so mental health, positive mental health on the one end and mental illness at the far end. But of course, there are many different shades of gray in the middle, people struggling with short-term issues or even sometimes chronic illness, you know, concerns that they have. So there's quite a bit of uh, difference. The other thing is we do have formal definitions of mental illness, and there are many different forms of mental illness. So yes, there's lots of different ways to experience this problem. And to say that there's necessarily a predominant uh, one in either category, not so much, or? Um, Well, again, if we look at the epidemiology of mental illness, we do know that there are some common conditions. So anxiety disorders, depression, substance use are certainly the, the main three that we see in Canada. But there are a wide range of other kinds of conditions that people can have as well. What should we do to protect and improve mental health? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I think that that's the important part of this discussion. So the World Health Organization has designated this as World Mental Health Day. And again, they've done this for two reasons. One is to recognize that people do struggle and, and do have mental illness on the one side, but also to really help us to think about and promote our mental health. Uh, when we think about the promotion side or the prevention side, uh, what I tend to do is think about the what we call biopsychosocial framework. So we look at the biological, psychological, and social aspects of being a person and think about all of these domains and the things that we can do. So biological things we can do, eating healthy, exercising, um, you know, sleeping as best we can, you know, sort of taking care of our bodies. Uh, so that's critical. Psychologically, you know, being thankful for the things that we can be thankful for, getting engaged, you know, thinking about the future, uh, planning in as positive way as we can. 
um, you know, sort of basically, you know, thinking about ourselves in a positive direction. And then socially, being connected. We know that social connection is a critical aspect of mental health. And so whether we're doing it for ourselves or helping other people to be connected, it doesn't really matter. But the social aspect is, is critical. An estimated one in eight people around the world living with a mental disorder. That was in 2019. One in yeah. eight people. So we're talking what? About a billion people. Correct. About a billion people. And at the same time, this is the, the WHO saying this, at the same time, services, skills, funding available for mental health remain in short supply, fall far below what's needed, especially in low and middle income countries. What about in countries such as ours, Dr. Dobson? Yeah. Yeah, so the issue of access to mental health services has been recognized as a significant problem by every major group, the Mental Health Commission of Canada, the Canadian Psychiatric Association, Canadian Psychological Association. So we have known for a long time that access to services is not adequate. Uh, so, uh, you know, and as bad as we are, like you've just said, uh, in low and middle income countries, the situation is much, much worse. But, but access has been a real problem. The other thing that's important to note is that during the pandemic, because the statistics you're talking about are pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, right. Yeah, but during the pandemic, rates of anxiety, depression, substance use have approximately doubled, uh, even higher in some age groups. Uh, So actually for older adults, uh, it has not been as bad as for younger adults, but the rates of mental health challenges have gone up significantly. So one of the things that has happened, and and this is one of the silver linings, there aren't very many of the pandemic, but one of them is because of the need for physical distancing, we've done a lot of shifting towards virtual care, so telephone or web-based kinds of services. And one of the advantages of that model is, of course, you can reach a lot of people that you wouldn't be able to reach otherwise. And so we have seen an increase in access. And we do expect that coming out of the pandemic that some of this access will maintain. But the need is still much, much greater than the available services. Dr. Keith Dobson, professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary and past president of the Canadian Psychological Association. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Bridget in Toronto phoned during our segment on the costs associated with the Arrive Can app. When we talk about cost, I've worked in, in a few bureaucracies in my life, and um, it's really about the bureaucracy. Because when you are trying to do something new and you're working in the government, you are, things have to go past through many hands. It's many, there's many layers. It's very complex. Many approvals are happening. You're paying all of those people. It is very hard to be innovative in a bureaucracy. And I think that's what happened here. So when you have a small company, you can be more agile. 
absolutely. This is just an example of the things that we pay way too much money for because we're developing these things within the confines of a bureaucracy. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Margaret in Etobicoke, who phoned to talk about her experience with City of Toronto services as the municipal election approaches. I'm a blind person. I use the Wheeltrans system here in Toronto, and the big problem we're having right now is the what they call the family of services. The idea is it's supposed to give people a choice, you know, about how they want to travel, whether they feel safer traveling from door to door in a vehicle or whether they want to be able to use the conventional TT system, TTC system, which is buses and that kind of thing. But here's the problem. A lot of people don't get that choice. A lot of people get told, no, you can only have the door to door at this time of the day or that time of the day. I think people, number one, should have the choice of what vehicle they want. And number two, I don't know how, how what the answer is to coordinate the rest of the stuff. But, I mean, it's it's a very frustrating program to use, and I'd appreciate it if somebody out there would kind of look into that. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.